were in Exodus, but it was actually only two of these meetings ago. Uh, we just have not had many um, Sunday nights this summer. Uh, and so if you missed last week, you might not know this, but we are going from Exodus, where we left off, um, to Deuteronomy starting in September. And there are two Sundays here in August that we are are we have in between that we're going to go from Exodus to Deuteronomy. So we're, we're going to cover, we covered Leviticus last week in one week. We'll cover Numbers this week in one week. Um, and so uh, here's what we did last week, just real, real, real briefly as a reminder or to catch you up if you weren't here. The first thing to remember about Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers is that they are one continuous story. They're unified. Uh, They're doing one thing. And and a good way to summarize it, they are fulfilling God's promise to Abraham. And I'm going to talk about that again. But basically, uh, in Genesis, God had promised Abraham that he would... um, take his descendants, he would multiply them, he would take them as his own people, and he would bring them back again to that land. Um, and so that's what's, what's going on here. So this promise that God made to Abraham uh, is being not completely fulfilled, but largely fulfilled in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. So these are related. That's the thing to remember. And and last week we demonstrated just demonstrated that just by the first verse in Leviticus and the first verse in Numbers, um, and so this is part of the first verse. Then the Lord uh, in Leviticus, then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, and then in Numbers, then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, Sinai in the tent of meeting. So notice the similarity, but there's also one big difference, and that's how we find out basically what Leviticus is about. The biggest difference is this, that then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tenth of meeting in Leviticus and in the tenth of meeting in Numbers. And why is that? That is because at the end of Exodus, it's a continuation of Exodus, Moses couldn't go in. The tent of meeting, because the glory of the Lord was had rested upon it and filled it. The cloud had filled it, and he couldn't go in. He couldn't go into God's presence. But by the end of Leviticus, or the beginning of Numbers here, you can see, he's in the tent of meeting. That, the tabernacle was designed as a place for God's presence, and a, designed as a place where God would meet with Moses. And so at the beginning of Leviticus, he can't. And at the end of Leviticus, he can. So that's what Leviticus is about. How does that happen? How does that get from this place to this place? And here's, uh, here's the line that we, that we referred to last week. God graciously provides a way for sinful, corrupt people to live in his holy presence. So that's what Leviticus is, is about. Uh, that is the line that the... The way that the, the Bible Project stated it, we watched a short video about that last week, about Leviticus, um, how God graciously provides a way for sinful, corrupt people to live in his holy presence. And how does he do that? 
Well, if you remember, Leviticus is all about holiness. That's the main theme. Uh, and it, and this, this verse and something like it are quoted, are written several times. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So holy, set apart, unique, different, pure. And so God needs to make his people holy. They are sinful. He is not. He's holy. And so he doesn't change. The people need to change. And so that's what happens through the rituals, through sacrifices, through, through feasts, through the priests representing and offering sacrifices, through purity, both ceremonial and morally, the people need to move to purity, to holiness. And the focal point of that is the Day of Atonement, when God provides a sacrifice to atone for our sins. So let's move to Numbers, because it is a continuation of the same story. So in case you are wondering, we are going to watch the Numbers video uh, in a little while. Um, but before we do that, I just want to talk about a couple of questions. One is, how did Numbers get its name? They're actually going to talk about this in, in, the, in the video. Um, but the other one is, how is it that Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers fit together? So first, how does Exodus get its name? Well, we'll just put this verse up there. Uh, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of the names. So uh, the number, uh, uh, the word for, let me see if I can get this right now, in, in Greek is arithmos, arithmetic, right? So that's the na- that was the original name of numbers in the Septuagint. Um, it, it got moved into Latin, comes something like numeri or something like that, and, and in English, numbers. Okay, so it comes because of this numbers thing, and there's a census at the beginning of, of numbers. And there, we find out that there are 603,550 men between the ages of, for 20 years and up at that time. So, um, later on in Numbers, there's another census, about two-thirds of the way through the book, where there are 601,000, so very slightly less, 300 or 730. So, two times when they are numbered. Second question was, how do Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers fit together? Well, a really simple illustration here. Uh, Numbers chapter 1 isn't the first time we have names and numbers listed in this three-book story. In fact, Exodus begins this way. Here, I'm just going to, I'll just read you a couple of verses from the beginning of Exodus. Beginning of Exodus chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 and 5. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. Sounds quite a bit like what's going on in Numbers. And then verse 5. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. 
Joseph was already in Egypt. So 7,603,550, something has changed, right, in this time. Well, that's largely about the promise that God made to Abraham. I'm going to multiply your descendants. So by the time they leave Egypt, there's 70 when they go in. By the time they leave Egypt, 603,550. So this is a continuous story talking about how God fulfills his promises. We can stand on them, right? We can, we can do that. And if the people in Numbers would have done that, uh, things might have been quite a bit different. But, okay, so Exodus and Leviticus are about that. Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers are about that. There, there's the promise of multiplying descendants. There's also another promise that is in play in Exodus, just past the first couple of chapters, all the way through Numbers. And that it, it is that God is going to give the people the land of Canaan. So they need to move from Egypt to Canaan. That's what needs to happen. Um, and so... Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, they actually even follow a timeline. So I'm just going to show this out. So here's the, one, here's the num- first verse of Numbers that we looked at last week. Part of it. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. You remember that part, right? Here's the rest. On the first of the second month, in the second year, that they had come out of the land of Egypt. So... In the first month, on the first of the month, the second month, so the first of the second month. So they came out of Egypt on the 15th day of the first month. So 11 and a half months earlier, they had come out of, um, well, actually, there were 11 and a half months from um, the Exodus until the beginning of Leviticus, 11 and a half months. Okay. Then there was one month during Leviticus. And so what this means is that this is only, number starts one year and 15 days from the time that they left Egypt. One month, 15 days. So most of us know that the Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. What happened to the other 39 years? Well, they're all in they're all in numbers. So numbers is going to take up this this space of 39 years in a really 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 short time. So then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. So that's what happened to him. The wilderness is right here. Uh, just on a side note, that um, Numbers wasn't the original name of Numbers. The original name of Numbers in the Hebrew Bible is in the wilderness. Taken from this verse, but, but it also helps remind you, if you think of that, um, it's in the first verse. If you think of that, it helps you remind, remember where all the things that you can probably think of that happened in the wilderness happened. 
Uh, you'll be able to find them in numbers, most of them. Okay, so here is the um, Bible Project summary of numbers. Again, it's really good. Um, it's even shorter than last week's, though. So uh, last week it was eight minutes and some seconds. This is less than seven This fourth book of the Bible carries forward the story of Israel after their exodus from slavery in Egypt. God had brought them to Mount Sinai, and he entered into a covenant with them there. And despite Israel's rebellion, God had graciously provided a way for Israel to live near his holy presence in the tabernacle. So the book of Numbers begins as Israel wraps up their one-year stay at Mount Sinai, and they head out into the wilderness on their way to the land that God promised Abraham. Now, the book's storyline is designed according to the stages of their journey. So the first section begins at Mount Sinai, but then they set out and travel to the wilderness of Paran. And then from there, they travel to the plains of Moab, which is right across from the Promised Land. Now, the first part opens with a census where the people are numbered. That's where the book gets its name. And then there are laws about how the tribes of Israel were to be arranged in their camp. So the tabernacle was to be at the center, and then around that, the priests and the Levites, and then around them, the 12 tribes neatly arranged with Judah at their head. Now, this was all an elaborate symbol about how God's holy presence was at the center of their existence as a people. This is all followed by a whole series of laws that develop the purity laws from the book of Leviticus. If God's presence was going to be in their midst, every effort should be made to make the camp pure, a place that welcomes God's holiness. In chapter 10, the cloud of God's presence lifts from the tabernacle and guides Israel away from Sinai out into the wilderness. And immediately, things go terribly wrong. So in chapter 11, the people start complaining about their hunger and thirst and how they want to go back to Egypt. And then in chapter 12, Moses' own brother and sister begin opposing and bad-mouthing him in front of all of the people. This trip is not off to a good start. The next section begins as the Israelites arrive in the desert of Paran, about halfway to the promised land. And God tells Moses to send out the 12 spies, one for each tribe, so they can scout out the promised land. So when the spies all return, 10 of them say that there is no chance Israel can survive there because the Canaanites will destroy them. But there are two spies, Caleb and Joshua, who say that God can save them. But the ten whip up the people into a fearful rage, and they start planning a mutiny. They're going to appoint a new leader and head back to Egypt. So God is understandably angry, and Moses intercedes on the people's behalf. He calls God to be faithful to his promises to Abraham. And so God does, but not at the expense of his justice. He gives these Israelites what they want to not enter the land. And God sentences this generation to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they die. Only their children will get to enter the promised land. Now you'd think this severe consequence would wake them up, but it gets even worse. So in the next story, there's a whole group of Levites that begin a rebellion, and they challenge Moses and Aaron's leadership, saying that they have gone way too far. So God deals severely with these Levites, and he renews his commitment to Moses and Aaron as Israel's leaders. Now, as they leave the region of Paran and hit the road, it goes downhill yet again. The Israelites start complaining again about their thirst, and they ask why Moses even brought them out of Egypt in the first place. So God tells Moses to speak to a rock to bring out water for all of the people. But Moses doesn't really do this. He oversteps his bounds. He hits the rock twice and then says, you rebels, do we have to bring water out of this rock? 
So Moses dishonors God by putting himself in God's place as the one who brings out the water. And so Moses brings down on himself the same fate as the wilderness generation. He too will die in the desert and never get to enter the promised land. After this, the Israelites rebel yet again. And God brings a very strange judgment on them, venomous snakes to come and bite the people. And so Moses again intercedes on behalf of the people. And God tells Moses to do this, to make a bronze snake and lift it up on a pole so that whoever looks at this snake would be healed of the poisonous snake bite. It's a very strange symbol. But it speaks to the challenge that God has by being faithful to his covenant. He's right to bring justice on the Israelites' evil and sin. But even God's justice gets transformed into a source of life for those who will look to God for healing. From here, the people head into the plains of Moab. And the first main part of the section focuses on the strange figure of Balaam. So the king of Moab is freaked out at this huge group of people traveling through his territory. So he hires a pagan sorcerer, Balaam, to pronounce curses on Israel. And three different times... Balaam finds that he cannot curse them. He can utter only blessing upon Israel. Remember God's promise to Abraham from Genesis 12. So not only can Balaam not curse Israel, but God actually gives him a vision about a future Israelite king who will one day bring God's justice to all of the nations. This vision recalls Jacob's promise to Judah in Genesis chapter 49. Now it's worth stopping to reflect on the flow of the book so far. The rebellion stories in the wilderness, they just heap up on one another, getting worse and worse. And while God does bring partial acts of judgment on Israel, he's also kept showing mercy, providing food and water along the way. And so the Balaam story, it shows God's grace in bright colors. Because here's Israel, they're down in the camp grumbling and rebelling, but up in the hills, unbeknownst to them, God is protecting and even blessing them. And it's this contrast between Israel's rebellion and God's faithfulness in the wilderness. That's what made these stories so important for later generations of Israel. So the wilderness stories are retold time and again by later biblical prophets and poets and even by the apostles in the New Testament. And these stories always serve as a warning that while God will remain faithful to his covenant promises, he will also allow his people to walk away in rebellion and face the consequences. After this, the rest of the book focuses on the children of the wilderness generation, and they begin preparing to inherit the promised land. They take another census of the new generation, then they go on and win a number of battles with the people groups around them, and then a few tribes even begin to settle in the promised land. So the book ends with the new generation poised to enter into the land, and Moses is about to deliver his final words of wisdom and warning. But for now... That's what the book of Numbers is all about. Okay, so the Bible project there, um, did you catch that, that they've entitled this Rebellion in the Wilderness and that God brings judgment and shows mercy. So, um, and that is, this line is taken from, this, this, what Leviticus is all about, is taken from Uh, One of the central stories, probably the central story, which is when Israel goes to scout out the land, spy out the land, I think they said, scout out the land. Um, It's just as God says it should be, um, but they they refuse to go in anyway, um, and then things go really, really, really bad. Um, God pronounces judgment. Um, Moses 
intercedes for um, for the people, and that's where this idea of judgment and mercy side by side um, come from, um, from that exchange. So, um, the structure that they that they had up there for the, the for the book, the book structure is actually really, really, really simple. Simple. This looks um, this looks busy as it is, but they got that all in in seven minutes, uh, less than seven minutes. But I'm just going to simplify this just so it's a little bit easier for us to see. This is this is basic. Their basic. Um, Outline here, their basic structure of the book. It's in three parts. They're at Mount Sinai, or they're in the wilderness of Paran, a little bit larger area too, but, uh, and then they're in the plains of Moab. So those are the three parts of the book. And in each of those parts, a little bit different way to look at it, you will see things like this. So while they're at Mount Sinai for the first uh, almost ten chapters, nine and a half chapters, you're going to see the census that we talked about. Um, you're going to see the purity laws, the priests, the ritual things, just like you had in Leviticus. And then you're going to have God's presence represented by the pillar of the cloud. So, so that's just a quick summary. That is by no means complete. But, but again, here's roughly what you have. And then in the, the middle ten chapters, you just have complaining, basically. Um, complaining, leading to rebellion, um, more complaining, more rebellion. Um, and then you have that, that exchange where God and, and Moses talk about this rebellion, basically. And Moses intercedes. Um, and even after that intercession, then the people complain and rebel more. So it really is um, like that in the middle part of Numbers. And then the last part um, is the part for Hope, the, the bronze serpent story, um, the, the Sihon and Og, those are the, the kings that they conquer, um, the, new, the new generation conquers. Um, outside of Israel, you have that blessing and curse from, or turns a curse into a blessing, uh, Balaam, uh, and then the preparation to enter, which includes Torah, which Torah means instruction. So more instruction there on the plains of Moab about what you're going to do, what you need to know when you go into the land. So right up to the door, this takes us right up to the doorway, right across from Jericho, just before they enter the promised land, just before what happens in Joshua, really. I mean, um, Deuteronomy is in between there. Deuteronomy is um, sermons really, from Moses, um, or you could say addresses from Moses to the people in the same place, on the plains of Moab. So Deuteronomy takes place right there where Numbers, where numbers ends. Okay, so, and just about everybody sees the structure pretty similarly. Uh, I mentioned last week that, that Mark Dever from Capitol Hill Baptist has a series of of sermons, uh, one book at a time, the whole thing, expositional preaching on one book. Um, um, but I, I would like to say that the one on numbers I really, really, really thought was amazing, exceptional. Um, if you want to know how you can get to those, I can, I can uh, get you there. But 
just know that Dever preaches for a long time. Um, he this his numbers is his numbers sermon is one hour and four minutes, um, and so that's that's pretty common for the length of his sermons. Uh, he doesn't use exactly the same chapter breaks. I mean chapters fitting in here, but he pretty much sees the book the same way. He puts it like this. He's got Sinai at the beginning, and then he has a theological outline or a preaching outline for each of these areas where God prepares his people at Sinai. He continues to prepare them, uh, and then, then the people won't trust him or don't trust him, but God perseveres with them anyway, and he, and he follows that through with these same basic locations. He cuts the one at uh, that that Bible Project has at um, the wilderness of Paran into a smaller area at Kadesh, which is which is there. It's in it's in Paran. So that's Dever's basic outline. So this is it, though. This is basically what we have um, with numbers. So we're gonna we're gonna take it from here with this same basic point, and I'm just gonna make. Um, a few points here. One is I'm going to, going to take this concept a little bit broader, or this main idea that that of rebellion, etc., farther. And, and it's this: um, that the Lord remains true. You could say faithful. Like great is your faithfulness. The Lord may, remains true, even when His people show their own color. So it doesn't really matter what the people are doing. God's going to remain. True. He remains true to who he is. He doesn't change. We know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, he shows his true, he remains true to his own character. He remains true to his covenant love, steadfast love. We use that term. That's what the ESV has. Covenant faithfulness is another way to say that. He remains faithful to his covenant faithful to his people, and then faithful to his promises. So he is true to all of those things. Um, So, um, and again, along the lines of that Exodus, or that that Numbers is a continuation of this story, uh, you you might also remember that that as I started the Exodus study, at the beginning I almost always said, said this, that if you want to know what God is like, Exodus is a good place to start. So in these three areas that we have right here, um, we're going to get something from Exodus that, is, that God declares in Exodus that is shown to be true, that is developed in numbers, really. So the first section I'm just going to entitle I am who I am, which is Exodus 3.14. And again, this is that God remains true to that. Okay. Secondly, um, is this, you probably recognize the beginning of it. It was from Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the glory, Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear 
the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God remains true to that in the middle of the book. In fact, when when he's speaking with Moses, they talk about this. Um, And so, again, introduced in Exodus, developed here. Okay, and then thirdly, um, this is in the plains of Moab as they get ready to enter the promised land from Exodus 6, um, verses 6 to 8. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you will know that I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. So that's who Yahweh is. He's the God who is faithful to his promises. I'm going to promise you this, and I'm going to do this. And that is what happens at the end of Numbers. So those three things introduced in Exodus are all all developed in Numbers. So I am who I am. There's, There's a lot to that, of course, a lot to that statement about God's eternal nature Um, about his self-determination, how he is independent from everyone else, Um, but also this, holiness. And that's what's in mind here. So if you remember, Leviticus was about holiness. And actually, if you go back and go back to the the end of Exodus, the last part of Exodus is also about making the people of God holy repeated over and over and over and over again about holy at the end of Exodus and all of Leviticus. So end of Exodus, all of Leviticus. We shouldn't be surprised if the beginning of Numbers in this continuous story is also about holiness, and it is. So it's about the same things that you saw in Exodus um, and the same things that you saw in Leviticus about the purity about the, the rituals and about the priesthood, all at the beginning at Sinai, and as Deborah says, in, and preparing you by those things to go on the next part of this journey. So, the wilderness then, this part. So this is, this is initiated by... Um, by the people's refusal to go into the land of Canaan. To, to, after they spied it out and seen it, that to go in. And so this is where the people, in this middle section, is where the people show their true colors. And their true colors are not pretty. Um, so this is a time of rebellion. 
But if you remember clear back to Exodus, when they got in the wilderness first, what did they do? They complained about water. They complained about food. They rebelled against the Lord with a golden calf. So many of those things are repeated in numbers, but on steroids. Um, And so what was a small complaint, relatively, ends up being a really, really big deal here. They're, They're showing what is in there. They're showing the issue that I don't trust that God can fulfill his promises. I don't trust that God is with us. I don't trust that God isn't going to kill us. And so not trusting God, right? Not trusting God. Just stop and think about that. I'm sure that most of us have complained. I have, right? So the source of that, what we're doing is showing our true colors. We believe in an all-powerful God who is our God, who has rescued us from slavery just like them. And when I complain, what does it say? The same thing it says here. I don't trust God. I can see the promises that when, I, when we go, when we send our scouts out into the land of Canaan, it was exactly how he said it was going to be. God promised us it would be like this. He's given us these promises. We go and we see, yep, it's just. In fact, I'm, I was so amazed by it. I mean, it almost seemed unreal. It was so, so good in the land of, of Canaan. But um, there are big people in there, and a lot of them, and they live in fortified cities. What, what are we saying? God really can't fulfill that promise that he made to us. In spite of all the evidence, God really can't do that. And so think about us when we complain. All that we have seen God do, all that we have read about doing, God doing, which we have more of that than they did. They experienced those great wonders, yes. Everything that we've seen, and we know what God has promised us. We know what he has has promised us. And yet, do we fail to believe it? Well, God remains who he is, and we're not going to be able to go into, we don't have enough time to go into, we don't have any time to go into, to that, inter, that interaction between God and Moses after that rebellion. So, so what I would say, read it, Numbers 14. Read Numbers 14 because you will see something there how God can be 
gracious and merciful, forgiving sin, God of steadfast love. But who will not clear the guilty? So, so take time to read it. I'm just going to skip through it and get to the last section. Uh, it's going to, you're going to watch these slides go by really quickly. But there. <laughs> and so here's the good news. The good news is there is this last part. The good news is that God is faithful to his promises. And although that whole generation dies in the wilderness, all of them, all of the men 20 years and up except for Caleb and Joshua, die in the wilderness. Every single one. All of the men 20 years and up die in the wilderness. God remains true to his promise. I will make your descendants like the sand of the seashore. I will take them to be my people. I will take them, bring them to the promised land. So the census, this last census, um, less than, less than 2,000 people fewer than, than what was at the beginning of the chapter. So when all those people die, there are now 601,730 men, 20 and up. The whole generation has been replaced. God has continued to keep that, the number high as they get ready to enter into the promised land. He remains faithful. He remains true to, him, to who he is. He remains true to his steadfast love. His covenant love, he remains true to his people, and he remains true to his promise to bring them home, just like he is true to the promise to bring us home. Again, here's that promise that he made. I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'm going to pause right there. All of those things. We could change probably the direct objects in some of them. But that's the same story we have. God brings us out from the burdens of sin. He delivers us from slavery to sin. He redeems us from our sin with great acts of judgment. He takes us to be his people. He is our God. We know he is because he has brought us out of that slavery. And so the rest of it, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you. For a possession. I am Yahweh. 
So, the burdens of this present life, as Paul calls them, light momentary afflictions, aren't worthy to be compared with this, the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, we'll close um, in prayer, and it's actually, I'm going to scroll through a bunch of things really, really fast to get to them, but it is from Numbers, probably our favorite verses in Numbers. Here they are. Uh, Please stand for our final prayer.